Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Awareness to Action. Today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Pandel. Dr. Pandel has worked for Northwestern Community Services Board as a child adolescent therapist since December 2009. In that time, he has created a much sought after diagnostic and assessment monitoring program that provides regional youth serving agencies with advanced clinical oversight of children with significant behavioral and psychological challenges. Originally a teacher and minister, Dr. Pandel continued his education, earning a PhD in pastoral counseling psychology. In addition to his work with the CSB, he operates a consulting practice and has served as a clinical professor of psychology at several institutions. Dr. Pandel and I got to talk about the windy road that led him to his current work and the parts of his job he finds most rewarding. Dr. Pandel also shares his perspective on the ways that community engagement benefits everyone and offers practical advice for identifying interests and opportunities to become involved. This conversation left me feeling energized about all the ways a person can serve their community, and hopefully it will do the same for you. We recorded this episode during the pandemic, so Dr. Pandel is joining me via Zoom. All right, Matt, welcome to the Awareness to Action podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Uh, Matt, I'd love for us to start with you telling our listeners about the path you took to get to the work you do now. Sure. Um, I went probably the least direct route a person could go um, into moving into the mental health arena. Um, I originally was a uh, school teacher and a minister and uh, really did not have any intention of going into to mental health. Uh, it was not something that uh, it was interesting, but in the same sense, a lot of different industries or, or studies were interesting. It wasn't something I had planned on. Um, but it just kind of happened gradually. Um, I had started out, I knew I wanted to work with, with kids, um, with uh, children, youth, families, uh, teenagers in particular was a, an area of interest. Um, and at the time, the most logical way to do that seemed to be uh, a teaching credential. So I had uh, done a bachelor's in uh, history, political science, and French, and uh, had teaching endorsements in social studies and foreign language. And had also done some um, additional training uh, toward the ministry for a, a bachelor's in ministry. And that was kind of the, the catchment I planned. Uh, but what I found was there's a lot of different ways to work with kids. Teaching is certainly one of them. Uh, but as I was doing more and more ministry work, I was finding that a lot of the needs that were being presented were really needs I was not trained or equipped to handle. Um, they say there's two classes of people that encounter things that you cannot shock them. The first is social workers, and the second is ministers. Um, the the uh, I think it's just the nature of the relationship. Um, just like a teacher with student, it's not an equal relationship. Similarly, your, your pastor, your rabbi, your imam, they, they are not. It's not equal footing uh, with the the congregation they're dealing with. So they inherently open up. There's usually a tendency to uh, divulge, and they would divulge things that I had no idea what to do with. 
And so uh, I, I was uh, dealing with this within the denominational system I was a part of. And they said, well, why don't you, you know, do some graduate work um, specifically in family therapy? Uh, and I said, that's fine. I don't want to be a therapist, but that's fine. Um, so I, I, I did a master's in divinity uh, with family therapy as the concentration. And uh, it was it was phenomenally interesting. Uh, it, it made me much more comfortable uh, in interacting with that kind of challenge that would present itself uh, from the ministry fr front. I was still uh, planning on teaching. That really hadn't changed. I just wanted to be better equipped. Um, so these were delusions of grandeur I lied to myself about for a long time. Um, that, you know, this, this is just stuff you're studying because it's interesting to you now, and it will make you better at what you're already doing. Uh, because change is my arch nemesis. I like things to stay the same. Uh, and so when I have to change, it's yikes. Um, so I, I convinced myself this was just um, continuing education. I was just broadening my own personal horizons. Um, started to be pulled on uh, within the denominational system, do a lot more work with families. I mean, imagine that um, they sent me to get trained to do it and then expected me to do it. Um, it's, it's remarkably offensive to me. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I, I went forward um, and started to do a lot of work with families. And um, that really triggered in my own mind a transition that I had to make. And it was that I had a preconceived notion about how I was going to serve children, youth, and families. Um, and uh, thought that was going to be through teaching, thought that was going to be through uh, ministry work, and it, it transitioned to, no, this is, this is kind of a catchment that, one, there's a huge need for. Um, it's something that, um, not to be overtly pompous, but I got pretty good at, uh, and so I was having good outcomes with, and so this is the direction I want to go. And then, so I ended up um, kind of changing gears a little bit and shifting more toward um, a, a behavioral or clinical psychology route when I was uh, working on my, my PhD, which is actually in pastoral counseling psychology. It's a combination field of um, the uh, faith-based mental health intervention, but also with a very heavy dose of credits from standard clinical psychology. And that landed me where I'm at today. So it was a weird, windy path. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we, it's about the destination. How I got here is a very convoluted thing, but I, I, I arrived. <laughs> I am I am really still laughing at you saying I don't want to be a therapist but that's fine. <laughs> we have so many ideas for ourselves and I feel like we can become so rigid in our expectations that it takes a lot of pushing and prodding to open ourselves up to what we might actually be good at or actually really love. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, the the school of psychology I was trained in is known as Adlerianism. Uh, it's after a, a German uh, Austrian guy named uh, Alfred Adler, uh, and, and Dr. Adler made the comment once that the greatest lies we tell are the ones we tell ourselves. Um, and, and I I inadvertently live by that motto. <laughs> it, sometimes you just got to believe a thing, and even if you know it's not true, but it gets you where you need to be. Uh, you, you you put up with it and it gets you there. <laughs> yep, yep. I think we all uh, we all are, get pretty good at that. <laughs> so Matt, I know that. Well, I know you're a smart guy, and I know that you notice things because that's part of your field, part of who you are. Um, what were some of the patterns that you noticed in the roles that really pushed you to pursue the particular area that you're in now? Um, 
I, I would say it was, uh, again, I didn't come at this straight from the mental health angle, so I kind of winded my way to it. Um, when I was working in ministry in particular, um, now I, I come from a, a very conservative area uh, by my own temperament. I'm conservative in most every outlet you could imagine from political to cultural to I'm a pretty laid back conservative guy. Um, so that was the community I came out of. And so because of that, that was most of the demographic population I was working with. Um, these are rural individuals, maybe a little suburban, but mostly rural. Um, and what I was finding is there was a lot of preconceptions about what mental health or mental illness was uh, within various faith-based communities, but also even just within the, the popular culture of, of the society I grew up in. And uh, the real dilemma was you, you would have, particularly within the faith community, there would be someone has high blood pressure. No one thought anything of you going to your physician and being prescribed something for high blood pressure or seeing a nutritionist uh, to learn some new eating habits. But if you were exhibiting anything relevant to mental illness, that was somehow taboo. Um, that was somehow, I think the most heartbreaking thing it was, was that was somehow viewed as a failing. Uh, whereas your body was understandably um, assaulted from time to time by either poor choices we make or just allergies or things that just come at us biologically, that was okay. But um, there was nothing wrong with you as a person. There was nothing wrong with you morally or aesthetically when that happened. But if you were experiencing depression, if you were experiencing stress or anxiety, if you had difficulty dealing with some past traumas of things that had been done to you that had nothing to do with you, but it somehow left an imprint on your personality, that was somehow viewed as you're the problem. And uh, if you just, again, within the faith community, if you just believed more, if you just trusted God more, these things would, would disappear. Um, so this is really a lack of faith issue. Um, the real, I think, turning point for me was I, I was in a meeting. Again, I was there as a consultant. Um, I had my, my spanking new master's degree in hand. And so the, the um, denomination put me to work as a consultant to pastors. So I was sitting in a meeting where um, it's a team of pastors, and they're trying to brainstorm what to do about a particular situation with a congregant they were dealing with. And uh, the, the comment was basically made that, well, you know, if, if this individual just, um, you know, they had, to, they had to do more spiritual disciplines is what we termed. It's like they need to be praying more, reading scripture more. They need to be doing more service in the community. They need to be uh, giving more contributions theoretically to charities. They need to be doing more. Um, and what struck me, what was the complete turning point is the person making these statements was wearing eyeglasses, the, the, the um, lenses of which were the thickest I have ever seen. Um, now, I'm by nature a mental rambler is the term I use. So if when I'm bored in a setting, I start not daydreaming, but like I just start like elaborately going off of my own internal bunny trails. So I'm just like thinking, okay, I would not get in a car with this man uh, because no one whose glasses are that thick is legally sighted. This guy is blind. There's no way. So we got this guy who has got these Coke bottle glasses basically saying that because this person is having a mental health crisis or a mental health challenge, there's something morally wrong with them. Meanwhile, he has no beef with the fact that he needs glasses just to be able to find papers on a desk two feet in front of him. So the double standard 
was uh, the real turning point for me um, of this isn't right. Um, I, I don't want us to get to a place where we rely on therapy or medication to solve all of our problems, but there has to be a place where mental illness is not treated any differently than uh, physical illness. I mean, the word psychology is, is from uh, Greek, it's the word suke. Uh, it literally just means the soul. Um, so the, the study of psychology is the study of the soul. It's the study of your mind, your will, and your emotions, uh, which no matter what faith community you come from, um, that is a, a running theme of whatever uh, scriptures or, or, or sacred texts um, that, that you use. Um, so we, we have to be aware of our, our will. We have to be aware of our emotions. Those things impact how we function. And if you need some help navigating that, how is that any better or worse than needing an optometrist to provide you corrective lenses so your eyes function at their optimal? Absolutely. And it's so, it can be so helpful in reducing stigma to talk about it that way and to say, hey, cool, you know what? Let's get you a primary care physician and let's get you to see a therapist. And I think in fairness, because I don't want to overly beat up on those who have that perspective. A lot of this is experiential where all of us have experiences going to a doctor. Um, I've never met anyone who's never been sick. Uh, we've all had a point where you're not feeling well and you have to go to a physician. So from an early age, you know what that is. Not, be, not Nobody watches Grey's Anatomy to know how a hospital works. We know that's entertainment. It's fake. It's not real. That's not at all what a hospital is like. Um, we probably have been to a hospital, either for our own personal needs or to visit a family member. That's what informs us is experience. Mental health is very different in the sense that very few people, uh, particularly those who have an animus to it, will experience the therapeutic process. And so their concept of what psychiatry or psychology or just general counseling and therapy is comes from like watching Dr. Melfi on The Sopranos. Um, that, that they have this you know, person with a couch. I mean, I, I've been doing this 15 years. I've never once been in a therapeutic office with a couch. Um, you, you don't lay on the couch and, you know, this Freudian tell me about your mother. It's not like that at all. And so we've maybe branded it very badly. We leave them with no choice, but to look to very dry, unpleasant, distant, very, very, uh, sterile clinical type examples like, you know, shrinks on television. Um, I mean, cause really we gave them two options where you could have Dr. Melfi on one hand, who is kind of cruel and is really has her, a lot of her own issues she really needs to deal with. And then you had like, you know, Bob Newhart and the Bob Newhart show, which predates you by a long time, but nevertheless, um, where he's this good natured psychologist who, you know, does groups with people with very unique situations and he's kind of fun loving and kind, but he's also kind of a, a Magoo screwball type figure. So these are the examples we set um, rather than, okay, no, this is just like sitting down with anybody else. Just, they have a special skill set. Uh, to help you uh, get where you want to go. They're, they're just people, um, just like your, your physician, just like your dentist, just like your um, postman, anybody that you, they're just people uh, who have a specialized skill set and, uh, and can usually be of help. That feels like a really important point that I have not considered in that way of how normalized it is to go to a primary care provider, but not necessarily a, a mental health professional. So you are one of the providers in the community who is offering their help and their care in a way that's compassionate and client-oriented. So 
I would just love for you to speak to what it means to you to be able to address trauma in your work. I think that there's, there's a vulnerability um, when you're working with someone with trauma that is um, remarkably intimate. Um, and I, I mean that in a, a generic sense. I mean, it's, they're, they're divulging parts of who they are, parts that they may not want to acknowledge are present, parts that they believe they will be negatively judged for, and they uh, are choosing to trust you enough to uh, let you into that window uh, of their darkest selves. I mean, we're, we're all, as people, we're, we're really good at putting on the face we want the world to see. Yeah, when you and I were prepping for this, um, I had sent the question to you of, well, you know, am I going to be on camera or is this just going to be an audio podcast? Uh, because if it's just audio, how I present is really just going to be based on the clarity of my voice, diction, and my vocabulary choice are the only things I'm going to be judged by. Whereas if I'm going to be visibly apparent, um, I, I may want to put on a tie or a sweater or something and look a little more shrinky. Um, but that the face we put on things is, uh, it's natural. It's natural to have kind of, you know, layers of, of who you are and how comfortable you are with sharing those with the world. So when somebody takes what is the deepest, darkest, least pleasant part of themselves and trust you enough to share it, um, they're trusting you to be able to handle that information safely uh, they're trusting you to keep their confidence. Um, the uh, trauma, just as I, I insisted I would never be a therapist, I also insisted that I did not want to deal with trauma. Uh, I just wanted to focus on depression, anxiety, the straightforwards, maybe a little oppositional defiant, um, you know, work on some, some uh, behavior plans with kids. That was the extent I wanted to go. Um, and then in my current position, it, it kind of started out that way with, with what I expected. But little by little, it shifted to where right now, uh, 90 to 95% of the youth I work with are either in the foster care system, are at risk of entering the foster care system, or have come out of the foster care system. So they're all connected, 95% are connected to it in some capacity. Um, so I had to get uh, aware of trauma really fast um, and have indirectly become an expert in it, not so much based on my training as much as just it, it's a, a lot of trauma cases. There's nothing quite to compare it to in the sense, I mean, I've worked with some kids where I am the only constant in their life. Um, now, as I mentioned, I, I came from a very conservative background. It's a two-parent household. We grew up middle class. My parents were employed. There was never a concern about um, you know access to, to food or safety, security, housing. None of that was ever at risk. Um, to then have kids where I am oftentimes maintaining them on my caseload just because they're on their fourth social worker, they're in their third foster care placement. Um, I am the only familiar face they have. And that is, uh, I, I, I count it as a privilege. I, I, it's something that, that I'm, I'm honored that I, I get to be able to be that for them. Um, but it produces a, a much longer term relationship than I think I would be experiencing if I were still doing like outpatient or home-based services where we're going to work together for six months and, and then we're going to take a break and I may refer you out to somebody else. And 
in, in my current capacity, I have kids I've worked with now for over three years uh, at one time. And uh, yeah, it, it's a unique relationship. It, it's it's uh, tricky making sure it doesn't become a dependent one. I don't want them dependent on me for support. Uh, but at the same time, um, just being that uh, that consistent element that they feel safe and secure, uh, being able to to not only share their difficulties and their challenges, or, or for lack of a better word, their failings, because um, we all have them, but um, to really be able to share their successes, uh, the, the excitement that they get when um, they will, you know, be leaving me tons of voicemails. Uh, while I am in sessions all day, just making sure that I'm going to be available at 3.30 because they had a really good day at school that day and they want to tell me about it. Um, that, that kind of thing that I, um, I never expected that, that mental health practice would um, have that element of um, joy, for lack of a better word, um, of, of just uh, being able to have that level of connection with individuals that still is a professional relationship, but nevertheless has a, a considerable degree of intimacy. I'm so glad you mentioned joy because I think when we hear about work that involves trauma or even, I mean, work that's related to mental health in any capacity, joy is not what you think of, but it's so present in that work and in those relationships. Um, and I'm also really glad you talked about the vulnerability and the intimacy of that trauma work because it's that's obviously such a huge piece of it. But I also know that you're really passionate about how the community can be engaged in that healing. So tell us a little bit about that. That's a great question. Um, I mentioned that a therapist is just a person who has specialized training. That specialized, and I, I want to be careful because I, I don't want to give the impression that just anybody can go out there, hang up a shingle and say they're a therapist. That's, that's not what <laughs> I'm wanting to articulate. Um, but everyone is capable of being part of the healing, helping process. Um, if you think back on your life, I mean, certainly if I think back on my own, um, the people who had the most significant impact were often people who I just encountered because of everyday life things. The, these were my teachers. These were scoutmasters. These were uh, athletic coaches. Um, the the choir director at church. I mean, there's all, all of these people really just found a way into my life in which they weren't trying to change me, therapize me, um, get me to uh, you know improve in any specific area as much as just they were there as caring, nurturing people um, who gave me attention, um, who gave me encouragement, who, you know, believed in me. And uh, while, you know, certainly we want people to turn to their parents, ideally for that as the primary source, um, it, it really does come from all angles. And the more support you surround somebody with, the better off they're going to be. Um, so by no means um, to really have a meaningful impact does a person have to uh, you know, get specialized training to become a mental health professional. Um, it, uh, I, I had worked with somebody years ago um, in a, a therapeutic capacity who, uh, she was in her 60s, one of the few adult clients I ever worked with. And uh, she was really like figuring out what she wanted the rest of her life to be. She had just lost her husband about two years before. Her kids were grown, 
thriving, um, but thriving so well that like they lived all over the world because they were in these very high demand jobs. And so she's kind of just like an empty nester. She lost her life partner. And now she's trying to figure out what the next part of her life is going to be. And um, we were talking and she, you know, I, I always wanted to be a nurse. Um, now, by all means, if you are 64 and you want to go back to nursing school, that's your business. Go ahead. I'm not discouraging you. For her, it was not something practical she really wanted to do. But what we realized was, okay, well then what's, um, we call it natural supports. Natural supports are just those things that are everyday good things for us that anybody can do that you don't need special training for per se, or at least not a degree necessarily. And so we kind of brainstormed, okay, what thing is there that's the closest thing to being a nurse without you having to go back to school, which at this point you're not really interested in doing? Because what she wanted was the helping element of being a nurse, not being able to, you know, sit with a flow chart of the human body and correctly identify all the anatomy. She wasn't looking for that element of things. Um, so she reached out to the local hospital system uh, there. And at the time it was Dover, Delaware, reached out to the, the Kent General Hospital System and spoke to their volunteer uh, services uh, director. Um, and they ended up having her go in. She spent time in their uh, cancer wing uh, initially, where basically she was just there to get you coffee um, to sit with people who were feeling uh, lonely. Um, a lot of her time, she mentioned, was really being a resource to family members of the actual patients, because, you know, often the patients are being taken back for appointments. And um, my, my wife had cancer. And um, I know uh, you put up a good front when you're trying to be the one to be of support and strength for the person who's actually sick. But the second they're out of sight, the stressors of being the caregiver for someone in that situation comes to a head. So a lot of what really, um, she tried to focus on was when the patient would be taken back for uh, a treatment, for example, or taken back for, for an MRI, and their uh, loved one is just kind of sitting in the waiting room alone for three hours while they're doing this ridiculously long and lengthy CT scan. That was her niche. Um, she would hone in on those people. Um, she was a very empathic person, so she was good at being able to figure out what they needed. Like, did they need a nurturing presence? Did they need someone to just crack jokes um, and get them laughing and, and find some joy in life in the midst of all the stuff they were dealing with? And it really, um, it really brought her back to life. I, I remember um, one of our final appointments together. She was joking that uh, her son, who lived in England, um, was uh, you know wanting to come back and, and visit with mom. And uh, he just randomly called her like, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning and said, hey, mom, I'm coming home. Um, can you pick me up at the airport, you know, at like 730 tonight? Um, and she goes, no, I have this going on, this going on, this going on. You got to get a cab. I love you, but I'll see you tomorrow. You got to give me notice. I have stuff going on. Uh, people are counting on me. Um, and it was just such a healthy response from this woman who I had initially encountered four or five months before, who was kind of spending her days doing crosswords and watching, you know, murder, she wrote reruns. Um, she really wasn't, she wasn't living. Um, so I, that's what I suggest. Um, find the things that if you, if you start with the question of what is the thing, if education wasn't a prerequisite, what is the thing you would like to do in this world? And then find the thing that's the closest to that, that you can do without necessarily obtaining the education. Um, and there are formal um, tools out there you can take. There, there's a career interest inventories that we usually think of with like 
teenagers to figure out what job they want to do for a career. But those are good for anybody of any age uh, to figure out what interests do you have and what are some um, some avenues for volunteerism uh, that can meet that need. Uh, there are tons of opportunities. I, I don't know that the uh, local school division um, has a um, oh, like foster grandparent program uh, for seniors. The uh, uh, also with the local school division here, at least in Warren County, we have a, uh, a program for basically prom dresses. Um, for, so, so those who can't afford to go buy one from the store can get one there. Uh, they need help sorting all of that because people donate these dresses and they need to get it hung up. And um, th there's lots of opportunities. The only wrong thing is to keep doing it. When you're miserable, the only wrong thing is to keep doing what you're doing because um, that's that's Obviously, what you're doing isn't working or you wouldn't feel miserable. Um, so, so do something else uh, and, and getting around people. Um, I, I had a, uh, uh, this is a minor bunny trail, but then I will refocus Casey, I promise. Um, I had a, a professor uh, who used to make the comment that uh, the, the most effective way to deal with a spoiled teenager is to send them on a missions trip. Uh, because if you send them to Haiti for two months, all of a sudden, not having the latest iPhone won't matter that much. They're just going to be glad that when they pull up the tap, fresh water comes out. Um, so, so the perspective is, is where a lot of it comes in, of just being able to interact with people in a way that meets their needs, which then inevitably distracts you from your own. First of all, I want to meet that woman. <laughs> she sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> um, I love... I love that her son called her and she's like, sorry, sorry, my dude, <laughs> you got to figure something else out. I <laughs> have a packed social calendar. Um, and I really appreciate what you're saying about the creativity that can be there and choosing how, how we give our time and the perspective that it can offer to us. I mean, it's just benefits all around. And I, I think that really ties to something else that I want to ask you about, which is I mean, truly, it's such a beautiful thing when we can bring our personal gifts and our strengths to an area of interest or a professional field. And psychology can feel really scientific and sometimes cold and out of reach if you're not in the field. But you have a way of making it personal and inclusive and warm. So as somebody who's doing this in their work, can you speak to the importance of bringing our natural gifts and strengths into what we're putting into the world. Absolutely. Um, that's a really good question. Psychology is, it is a science. Um, it's very research-based when it's done well, uh, but it is an art. And um, I, I, I've gravitated on this uh, from, or, or vacillated from one side to the other over the years where when I started out, like a lot of people, you know, you got your degree in hand, um, you're, you know, rapidly insisting everyone call you doctor. Um, you know, you, 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 you studied a long time for this. And so you really put a lot of emphasis on it. I was in a conference um, and it was on a, a concept known as um, uh, human interactive therapy. It's the idea that uh, people are, are best served when we accept that they are experts on their own life. And our job as, as mental health practitioners is to help them navigate the, the blind spots they have, much more so than, quote, fix them. Um, and, and I left that training, I remember walking out to the parking lot, just being irate uh, at this idea, because I had gone to school for, by that point, close to nine years, 
I sure as heck better be an expert at something um, because, um, you know, I keep adding a zero to my, my student debt. Um, so I, I really better be, you know, the, the expert at something uh, if I went through all of this. Um, but little by little, I, I really have shifted to that frame of thinking. Um, it is about relationships. Uh, relationality is the hallmark of the human experience. It's what separates us from animals. Uh, it's what separates successful people from unsuccessful people. More than anything, the ability to form and sustain relationships. So if that's true of general human existence, Certainly, that has to be true when it comes to the practice of mental health, our, our um, social, uh, emotional interactions with others. It, it, I mentioned earlier that, you know, essentially therapists are people. Um, they are human beings with their own problems. They got kids, they got spouses, they have all the things that anybody else has to deal with uh, as stressors. Um, they're not better than you, they're, they're just um, trained to help navigate. Uh, these unique situations. And so for me, one of the buzzwords in the mental health community is evidence-based. Um, and evidence-based is just the idea that, you know, a method that's used with people therapeutically really should have a pretty hard, solid evidence under it that says this works. I fully support the idea of evidence-based. I am pro-evidence-based interventions. But the reality is you could have the best evidence-based program in the world and be fully trained in it. And if there is not a relational connection between the therapist, the counselor, the psychologist, the teacher, the, the, any relationship, if there's not a meaningful relational attachment to the person, all of that evidence-based treatment means nothing. Um, years ago, we used to have a, a, an individual in our community who was just a wonderful, positive guy. Um, he did all kinds of different services in our community, from formal services like mentoring uh, and uh, in-home counseling to informal things like lawn care. He did all kinds of stuff. And uh, I can remember making referrals to him. And I would call him and say, hey, I got a 15-year-old kid. He's got all kinds of truancy stuff going on in school. I want him to work with you. Uh, and he'd say, okay, well, what service? And I said, I don't care. Um, I want him to work with you. Um, your personality is going to pull out of him um, that that um, my, my grandma called it the deposit of gold, uh, that, 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 that perfection that exists in all of us that's just deep down, some deeper than others, and you might need to find a way to yank it out. Um, that's what this individual was. was that was his skill set. That was his gift. Um, so when you're, when you're trying to figure out how to, to be of help to people, how to be a meaningful contributor to your community, it starts with figuring out what is, not, not necessarily what are you trained for, but what is your strength? What, what is the thing that people turn to you for naturally in life? And then find a way to maximize it. Uh, by all means, get, I mean, I'm pro-education. Again, nine years, I better know something. Um, I'm pro-education. But education just prepares you to master through experience. Um, that's all it functionally does. When I was a school teacher, I got very good grades in my teaching degree. I had no clue what I was doing until I student taught. Until you, put, until you put me in a classroom, thankfully with an excellent teacher who knew what she was doing, and let me trip over myself, um, say things the wrong way, get irritated with a student, 
Um, I went on a, a weird detention tangent one afternoon, right? I, I swore I wrote like 15 detentions. Um, it was just, I, I, I was done. Um, I, I, I needed those experiences to get to the place of actually being able to be an effective teacher. Um, so education and learning are wonderful, and I never want to minimize those things. But all they do is prepare you to garner experience. It's the experience that actually makes you effective. Um, there are studies, uh, and again, I'm, I'm pro-therapy, I am pro-mental mental health intervention, uh, but there are studies that do suggest that for many individuals, a meaningful, close relationship with a scoutmaster, with a coach, uh, even with a teacher, can be as beneficial therapeutically, and there's a lot of reasons for that, one of which is it's less professional, so that person is more available to you 24-7 as opposed to a therapist who keeps specific hours and, and has some professional barriers they have to keep up. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, so your ability to give back is really only limited by your ability to step out of your comfort zone um, and be something to somebody else. I mean, I, I um, we've mentioned I, I, I was a minister originally, and so I think through the prism um, of, of faith frequently. And um, there, there is, not to be preachy, this is neither a soapbox nor a pulpit, um, but, but I, I would mention uh, that there is a passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul makes the comment that he had learned to be all things to all people, that by some means he might save some. Um, that has become the guiding principle of which I've tried to live my own life. Uh, if I can be what people need me to be, um, I can pull some people out of some pretty horrific things. I don't make them conform to who I am or what's convenient or comfortable for me, but to try to conform myself to what they need me to be. The, the um, former client I mentioned uh, earlier who was doing the hospital system and stuff, working in the hospital system, that's what she did. She would look, observe the room, see a person who was clearly in need of some support, and she would become what they needed her to be. If they needed nurturing, she nurtured. If they needed someone to just quietly sit there and hold their hand, she would sit there for hours with them. Uh, but sometimes they needed somebody to crack wise and get them laughing and pull them out of, out of that malaise. Um, that's not being two-faced. It's not being you know double-minded or fake. It's the awareness that we're capable of all of those things. All of us laugh, all of us cry, all of us experience the full gamut of emotions. So being willing to adjust what we think or we feel to what others need us to be uh, in that moment. Um, there, there used to be a big push for a concept called love languages. It was the five love language book and it was out there and there was all kinds of different teaching series about it. And, and it's a perfectly valid concept. I don't mean to diminish from it, but, but I couldn't help but think, what if instead of focusing on me getting other people to give me what I'm convinced I need, I focus my energy on giving them what they need. If, if it became less focused on me getting mine um, than me ensuring other people are able to have the sustenance that they need uh, to be able to, to live the lives they want to live. And that really requires us to not put ourselves into a box with limiting beliefs about what we can or cannot do. I mean, that really requires me to say, okay, I can, I can learn or I can grow or I can really lean into this part of who I am that I don't normally lean into because we're all multifaceted. 
we all have deposit that deposit of gold. I love that phrase. Um, and we all can do more than we think we can. Absolutely true. Um, so while we're talking about leaning into, uh, leaning into the discomfort and, and stretching outside of ourselves, I think it would be great to highlight some resources or learning tools for listeners who are interested in the concepts you've talked about, both for people who are wanting to learn more professionally and maybe thinking of being engaged in this work or people who are looking for ways to better support their loved ones and community members. Sure. Um, first and foremost, uh, there is a, a big push uh, nationwide here in the U.S., uh, but also even up into Canada, um, on a concept known as ACEs, uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences. The, the notion of ACEs is that um, we can use this uh, trauma score to help us understand some of the other conditions or challenges that develop in life as a result of the, these early childhood experiences that we've had. Um, so those trainings are free of charge. They are offered all over the country. Um, uh, here in uh, our locality, there's several community organizations that offer the training, including a three-part one where it's ones like four hours, two days in a row, and then there's like a week-long seminar version, and then they even have longer ones. Some of these are often in person. Uh, right now, of course, a lot of stuff is being done by uh, virtual. Um, so that's a really good place to get started to kind of get some information on uh, understanding just how you develop connection with people. Uh, because ultimately, the, the people, and this is a generalization, but I think it's a largely valid generalization. Most of the people who have difficulty making relational attachments are individuals with a high rate of trauma. Because if you don't have a high rate of trauma, you are fully capable of making, of, of making relationships and forming relationships. Never having that deterred you from forming relationships because you were birthed and then matured with healthy attachments, healthy relationships. So the very people who are the most in need of forming connection with people are going to be those individuals with high rates of trauma. And again, this doesn't prepare somebody necessarily to be a trauma therapist, but it just makes you trauma-informed. Um, just be aware how trauma impacts <clears throat> how people behave um, toward you, uh, toward others, toward themselves. For much of... Um, my, my early training and early practice, I took a lot of things personal that, uh, well, they don't like me. Um, I did something that, that upset them. Um, maybe I should have done this instead, rather than just realizing, no, people are people. They've got a lot of trauma and this had nothing to do with me. I was just collateral damage. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time when a lot of other things bubbled up to the surface. So just being aware of that, because I, I, one of the most tragic things is, is we get people who they want to give back, they, they want to contribute, they want to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And so they jump in full force and they encounter a jerk um, or they encounter somebody who has a lot of baggage, um, somebody who may have a mental illness. They encounter difficult varieties of people that really just punches them down psychologically where, where they just feel like, well, I, see, I shouldn't even have tried this because 
I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not good enough to do this. There's better people to do this than me. Um, and, and that's not uh, really conducive uh, to, to people being able to be change agents, um, to use a buzzword. Um, if you want to be able to meet that connection, you've got to have the, the fortitude to push through those early trial and error phases where you're not always going to do it right. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, it, it's, it's about um, the effort. Uh, and it does get easier the more you do it. Um, but as far as, so the ACEs is definitely one thing I recommend. Um, get any of the free trauma trainings out there you can get, no matter whether you are wanting to volunteer by holding the stop sign at the bus stop, uh, or whether you are wanting to help with Meals on Wheels, whatever it is, understanding trauma will never fail you. That is always going to be a benefit to you in interacting with people. It's even going to help your relationships. I was in a trauma training not long ago where the presenter was talking about, in all honesty, the best thing she ever got out of trauma of, uh, trauma trainings was it helped her better understand her husband, um, who they had been married a long time. And it never occurred to her that a lot of the things she knew he went through, to some extent, she was aware of, of his early life. Um, but she had no idea that that was what caused some of the behaviors that she, I mean, I've been married 17 years. And if you were to ask my wife today, um, are there things Matt does that you find irritating? Her answer would be yes. Um, so as you're with someone a long time, there's things they do that just irk you. Um, understanding adverse childhood experiences can be helpful in, in really getting a handle on, well, maybe that's why they think that way. Maybe that's why they spend way too much money or why they won't spend anything. Um, maybe there's a cause to that. And it doesn't excuse it, but it helps us understand. Uh, so that's a good place to start. If you're not sure where personally to take that leap, um, there is a, just Google Career Interest Inventory. Um, it's designed for you to kind of, you choose what classes in school were of interest to you. Uh, and then it also has you uh, highlight uh, those skills and things that interest you. And then it produces a final score for you that can actually help you determine what might be well suited for you or even what types of careers, if that's something that you're interested in doing. Uh, here locally, we have the Area Agency on Aging. Um, we have different uh, organizations that work with those with intellectual or developmental disabilities, uh, like Blue Ridge Opportunities um, is one locally here. Uh, but there's every locality has these. It, it may even if you're not comfortable dealing with you know a situation where somebody might you know really be going through something and you just don't know that you quite feel ready to handle that kind of thing. Maybe they just need somebody to drive the van to and from their outings, where there's professionals present on the, in the van, on the bus, to deal with any major issues that would occur, you're just driving. Um, you, you are the wheel van. You are just getting them from place to place and uh, being just a positive influence in their lives. So it's reaching out to those people, taking the career interest inventory, find out those areas of volunteerism that would interest, and getting educated on, on trauma. That was just a beautiful... Uh testimony to how many avenues there are to get engaged. And I love that because I really do think there's a, there are places for all of us in the community where we can be lending a hand. And um, again, just really leaning into our, our interests and our strengths. So Matt, you have uh, really already answered this question in different ways, but I like to close with it anyways. So I will ask you 
our our signature podcast question, which is what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Being all things to all people that I might by some means save some. That's what it means to me. Matt, to I thank s- the Apostle Paul. I can't <laughs> credit. <laughs> well, we have some <laughs> that is attributed elsewhere, but I appreciate that. It's your, pers- your shared perspective. <laughs> um, Matt, I'm so grateful that you joined us on the podcast. I feel really encouraged by this conversation. I feel, I'm feeling motivated to figure out other ways I can be engaged in my own community. So um, thanks for being here and for sharing your story with us. It's an absolute pleasure. I appreciate everything you guys are doing with these podcasts. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can keep up to date with all of our future episodes. We'll see you next time.